affirmative action, freaking UFOs. Yeah, we. I think I think uh, we should start just topically on the UFOs because that's pretty interesting, and then we can go over into more, uh, you know, serious yeah. stuff. But um, that hearing was quite interesting, uh, to say the least. That's pretty interesting indeed. I'm glad that they uh, are finally not totally dismissing it because, like, the last I don't know, 30, 40 years, NASA's been on a basically a official policy of discrediting all UFO related stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so part of this hearing was actually their new um, official approach is that they're actually going to start um, taking it seriously and um, investigating them and uh, applying some of their resources to uh, researching on it. And, um, but I mean, you say something like non-human bio bio biologics as one of the pilots that they found, and you say you can't say anything else. I mean, that's probably one of the most explosive things I've heard in like 30 years. And they're just like, yeah, no, we can't say anything. It's like, that's okay. You can't just, you can't just say that, bro. <laughs> you know? Okay. So they did mention that in the hearing. They did say that. Now, the thing about that is, is he's a whistleblower and he's the one, only one person to say that. And that's why I'm still taking it with okay. a mountain of salt. It's a huge mountain of salt at this point. But um, I've never even heard that in any of the other UFO committees before. And all the other ones, they were even denied it. There was anything at all. And uh, just just the whole concept of what that means. They just want a clarification. The other senators want a clarification on what he meant by that. And he said he couldn't elaborate. So. Because uh, I have heard. Could be shocking. In the, yeah, I have heard in the recent past that a uh you could say high up military agent was speaking on ufos and he said this was his perspective that ufos were advanced government technologies mm -hmm. from various governments whether it was the united states china right um that were unmanned so they're all unmanned, right. which is why they're able to have these, like, you could say supersonic speeds that are going straight up right. vertically. Um, but the thing about non-human human yeah. biology, mm -hmm. that is interesting. That is. And it got me thinking about two things. And one was exactly 99% of the cases, even they acknowledge themselves or 90, I don't know, they have a figure, but. It was 90-something where um, most of them are going to be that. Advanced weapons programs, advanced uh, air, you know, uh, aeronautical systems, and even private ones that the government works with but doesn't acknowledge. And uh, so mm -hmm. even so oftentimes, if that's the case, one branch of the government won't know that the other branch is doing that. And so the NASA, the Navy pilots genuinely do think that there's something, you know what I mean? They don't know that there's another uh, yep. part of the government yep. working on that. Um, the other part that got me thinking, too, was about just randomly in terms of non-human biologics was not necessarily aliens, but the concept that we've heard very little bit about ever since Dolly cloning and biology research. And just there has been very little news about that. And I've actually been really surprised on that because um, as crazy as it seems, um, I, I'd be surprised if some people somewhere were not researching on how to change and make, make modifications to the, the genome. And that's why he, without mm -hmm. any clarifications, it's really hard. Cause what if he meant just like 
modded subhumans or superhumans are trying to work on, not necessarily aliens. So it didn't fit a human geome, but it did. It wasn't necessarily, you know, ET. You know? Yeah, I mean, totally secret. It's 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 either um, partial truth or conspiracy. But I've heard people speak about the Chinese government definitely taking human embryos and mixing them with other embryos right. to see what they can create. Things like that. So what if they, yeah. you know, then they put something that was semi-intelligent into one of these to see what happens to them mm-hmm. and say, you know, stuff like that. And you're like, okay, it's just because again, I've made my case about how incredibly difficult a, a space travel is. It just, it just, it seems really, really, really difficult. It's not impossible, but it's just, if they show up, I just feel like th- there's no reason for them to hide at all. They're so much more powerful. It's literally like us to an ant. It's so insane that they could just crush us without even anything uh, trying. Uh, because our our best rockets take 75,000 years to get to the nearest star. And that's our best rocket. That's our most advanced, fastest one. And uh, so if you can, if they can fly around back and forth, like at ease, back to the stars. And yes. <laughs> dude, that's, uh, that's a whole nother. That's, that's. That's Stone Age to an AK or a big birth artillery or something, you know. Yeah, I mean, no human has left the Earth's atmosphere since what is it, 1971? Oh, yeah, so outside of, towards to, the moon. Yeah, exactly. Far enough, like past the so L3 for, or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So for us to, you know, space travel, going even just to Mars. Um, what does Elon say? It would take at least six months when it's um, actually going to be ready. For sure. When it's actually ready. It's so, far from ready. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the further out that we estimate data, the more wrong we usually are. Right. So and we'll concede. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. So and to think of what kind of technology um, and extraterrestrial being whatever you uh, how do you want to refer right. to them what kind of technology they would have to just be over able to come over here and visit us exactly yeah so insanely advanced again i really think it would be similar to a stone age spear uh to maybe you know a super advanced weapon of today yeah. and 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 how how would that spear do against you know a a uh you know, a machine gun M51 or whatever, you know, so like how would it actually do? And so that's our relative strength to that. Now I will concede there's a, there's a thing in Star Trek actually where they say it's um there's a special name for it, but it basically means that l- less advanced species than them, they don't interfere with and they actually just study and they don't act and they don't actually interfere or interact with them in any way. And I will concede that might be a case. That could be the case that there's actually like the super advanced ones that are like hanging out and studying us and stuff. Um, but the part of that is, and and the part that would be very crucial to that is that they also, that also means they're not going to interact with any government either. That means no humans, mm-hmm. like it, they'd be completely above and beyond our ability really to uh, interact with at this time. Um, they would intentionally try to do that. So part yeah. of that, it's like some kind of protocol in the Star Trek thing. Um, but it was a smart idea because it, it kind of makes sense. If you have this like super advanced level, but these people are still nuking each other, then obviously you don't want to give them tools to nuke whole solar systems, you know? So you're kind of like saying, we'll keep them at study and, and uh, monitor stage. And when they show these new signs of other development, we, maybe we can approach them. 
I'm totally open that that might be a possibility, but that also includes that they're not also having secret agreements with the government, you know, as well. They're having an agreement yeah. with nobody, <laughs> you know, they're above us right at the moment. So that's my take. Anyway. And, and from a earthly historical aspect, we would only ever leave where we're at in order to seek out resources. That's right. And then you would essentially go and declare war to acquire those resources. Right. There's no there's no reason to leave home if you have the resources that are needed and for your foreseeable future. Exactly. So why would anyone come here? And part of the worry and of the if they are, is that. Is it resources? Are they scouts? Because mm-hmm. um, yep. it's obviously not declaring war because we know that as of right yeah. now. Um, but are they scouts to just merely see what kind of resources there are? Right. And that's, I'll totally concede that's a factor too. And again, same thing that applies though. They're not sitting talking to China's government or U.S. government if they're scouting out for mm-hmm. a potential invasion. These are going to be their greatest adversaries here. So, you know, that kind of thing. But the, uh, uh, I, I totally, in fact, part of the, one of the Fermi paradox explanations is that there is species out there uh, pretty much crushing planets like ours. And we actually should not be sending Many are even saying we should not be sending signals into space at all and that the smart civilizations are actually being totally silent because there is some super thing out there that is crushing them and can account for why the Fermi's paradox is the way it is Uh, because we have total dead silence out there, even though there should be at least some signals, even from long dead civilizations. There's nothing. It's totally silent. So what's so bizarre about that is there has to come up with these weird explanations for it that again, it's a paradox because mm-hmm. it should fit like the model of what we expect. And it's a paradox because it doesn't fit the model of what we expect. And so, uh, you know, it could be very well that we're like broadcasting stuff about uh, real housewives of Atlanta or whatever. And they're like, yeah. it's like we're broadcasting our uh, presence and they're going to, you know, they're heading our way. And like you said, these could be the scouts. Very well, I could, I'll concede that could very well be the case. With that said, all this is like really, you know, 1% margin of probability, but, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, I will, I guess I'm going to say that I don't know that there's anything out there until I see that there's evidence, but I've always believed that it's very probable. Sure, yeah. I mean, you look at 1 billion planets, and I was even taking some pictures and looking at that drone footage. And what's so incredible about life is like if it does seem that if the conditions are there, life just explodes. So even like if the conditions are there, it's like life doesn't even be moderate in its growth. It is everywhere. Like I was just looking at like mm-hmm. this huge field of re- of weeds, basically. And it wasn't even like, you know, cool plants. It was just like, you know, weed infested plants that we consider, you know. But it was a massive, it was a large bio weight of them. It was huge amounts of them. Yep. And they just flourish. So everywhere life can seem to flourish, at least on our planet, we only have one um, way to, you know, one measurement of it. Um, but, I mean, even I've, I've heard, you know, stuff like there's bacteria in the clouds. So literally from the top to the very bottom, way deep in the earth, life has literally exploded everywhere that it could uh, on this planet. And so there's a rough average about a billion Earth planets in our in our solar system. And that could be uh, somewhat lower or somewhat higher. But um, from what I understand, the mass does make sense. It kind of fits. uh, It makes sense, you know, generally. 
um, in terms of a logic, basic logic perspective. And so if you have a billion of these out there and to say that there's no life on any of them, it just, that, that would be Mm -hmm. beyond bizarre. That would be beyond like strange. So you'd have to wonder what else is going on there. And uh, that's the paradox is we have a billion other planets and at least some of those should be sending back signals, but nothing so far. We've got not a single one. So that's really bizarre and kind of unnerving. That's what I'm fascinated by it for sure. Yeah. It's It's paradox. It reminds me it's, it's kind of a little off topic, but it reminds me of how big the universe is, how big, our solar system is how big our planet is how old it Mm -hmm. is and then the fact that any one of us humans are even fucking here on earth for the tiniest minute amount of time right and that some of us want to take it for granted that we had this opportunity that's a very good point yep I mean that's exactly I I think I've said before I came to really love and appreciate the earth ironically not through let's say you know um, environmentalist propaganda stuff at times when I was growing up but I actually really Mm -hmm. came to love and appreciate and want to protect it through studying space which is a really kind of counterintuitive way of going about it but once you start studying all the other solar all the other planets in the solar system and as much as we can possibly record and see you see that this is like a precious gem, an absolutely precious gem. Yeah. There's, there's nothing like it. it is, there's nothing like it. The whole rest of the planets that we can measure in our solar system right now, completely dead. So avoidable. They might have had yeah. it once, and then they're not anymore. So. It, and it does. It makes you appreciate the fucking wildlife that mm-hmm. you know the, the weed just being out in nature the weeds <laughs> yes exactly the mountain looking at of those mountains exactly the fact that we have life in a decent amount of oxygen to go through our lungs and the life isn't even like barely struggling i mean the life is just flourishing here I even even there's yes. bacteria on those weeds and they're in a huge mm-hmm. biomass and etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's um, yeah and then incredible. you just Pull a chunk of those weeds out and just look at all the microbes in there. Mm-hmm. Just everything that is just right underneath it. They're already just thriving. There's like it's, creatures in there and they're doing their thing. And uh, it just layers of layers of layers of life. So it that's the paradox. You see all this life mm-hmm. everywhere here. And even in places on the planet where it's harsh, it's super harsh. And there's still life everywhere around there. And uh then the paradox is that there's a billion other planets like this that ha- seem to have nothing uh, that at least that's, you know, that's, that's just crazy. And the real crazy thing is that it's disputed what our first signal that was strong enough to escape out into space. But the, the kind of, the kind of story is that the first one that was strong enough was um, actually the 19, what was it? 1936 Olympics, 19, 1936. Olympics, uh, when uh, Hitler gave his speech. Yeah, Germany. Yeah, so uh, the first uh, um, introduction to humanity, uh, hilariously, if there is one out there, is going to be our first signals that will reach them will be, um, you know, Hitler's uh, Olympic speech. And wow. so that's pretty wild. But also that's been traveling for how long now? About, what, 80-something years, 90-something years? And... Um, yeah. yeah. So even to say that there was 150, and then remember that travels at nearly the speed of light. 
So that's been traveling for 90, you know, years in light speed in, in all directions, just about. And the signal degrades over time, but for a very long distance. I think it's about like 50,000 light years is when it's so degraded that you can't even measure it anymore. It basically melts into the background radiant noise and you can't really make it out different than there. But that's a long ways. So we're way past like the nearest star. It's already, it's already, that signal has already gone way. I think uh, it's 3.4 light years is Alpha Centauri. So that signal's already gone past uh, our nearest solar system and way out to some ones that I think they've already said that there's like Earth-like planets. And it's just wild. Nothing. Not not a signal back, not a not a peep. For oh, people who don't know how, explain how that signal was sent out. Uh, it basically like, you know how the, the AM uh, signals, they often would bounce off the top of the atmosphere and stay within the Earth's atmosphere. Eventually, the, mm-hmm. the strength of the signal got so strong that it escapes outside. So some of it bounces back in, and that's the signal that you receive on your TV. But some of those same signals are broadcasting, and they also go in other directions. And they, you can't control which, they, which direction they go in. And some go are powerful enough to leave, actually, into uh, the atmosphere. Once they get out the outside the atmosphere, there's way less resistance uh, to the mm-hmm. signal. So then it can just travel freely through a vacuum for eon. Like I said, for eons, easily 10, 20,000 light years, it can just travel out there. We got Hiller's uh, <laughs> speech. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, when these uh, aliens do come, they're going to ask to speak to Adolf. Yeah, exactly. Where's Adolf? <laughs> we like to speak to Adolf. Exactly. <laughs> and also, we can't we can't censor oh what God. we're sending, so we're also sending some of our most like worst, you know, again, like you know, housewives mm-hmm. of of Beverly Hills stuff. That's also being broadcast deep into space right now. Right now, we're sending that oh, out yeah. into. Uh, space which um is uh funny i think if this if the aliens encountered that they'd be like well why would we go there anyways you know kind of thing but mm-hmm. it's just a fascinating paradox i've always been fascinated with it and it's really fascinating because there's no real answer to it nobody has any answer to it it first started when enrico fermi uh the brilliant physicist who was working on the um manhattan project the story is that he had said that he asked, where is everybody after they started to understand how radio signals and transmissions work in space? He said, why haven't we received any from anybody else? And that answer has, that question has gone unanswered for, you know what, 80 years now. So, yeah. yeah. And who knows how many more it'll go unanswered for. So maybe these guys had some answers to the UFO thing, but I'm leaning more towards honestly undeveloped, unregistered secret weapons programs and propulsion systems yeah. and yeah i'm laying much more to that about most of that is that by far that's where that's definitely where i'm leaning um as well mm-hmm. it, because i mean again it's all hearsay and stories but we i've also heard that government agencies have been using different aspects of ai mm-hmm. for far before chat gpt was released right right you know, because um, why wouldn't they be using all these tools that we have access to a decade before us? Right. You know. And there's some that just want that, to win so bad that I can't see some mm-hmm. people out there somewhere doing some really shady genetic stuff. And especially yeah. as the tools get more powerful. Like CRISPR. Oh, yeah. I, I, I do not believe you're wrong. We'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, I think that. 
that should be that should cover the main issue of that because in general uh, it's probably just uh, weapons research programs. I look forward to the day we actually find that there's something out there. I'm I'm super excited to find that out, but it's just um, unnerving that like say 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 a World War II went sideways, right? And Hitler's uh, speech is still going out into space, but uh, at the end of World War II, we nuked each other into oblivion. So what's so interesting about this, about the paradox, is that even the species that have already died off, like say their sun failed, say they nuked themselves into oblivion, say, I don't know, something happened, and they're already even dead, and they can't even respond back to us anymore, they should still at least have signals drifting into space. What's so unnerving is that there's nothing. There's, it's total dead yeah. So that's in your like, hmm. So they have to get real weird questions to answer that or explanation. So it, it also goes to another one of my, my theories is that us on earth didn't happen by chance. Mm. Right. Because if we take the big bang, take a, this, it was an explosion in a printing factory mm-hmm. and everything came into place perfectly and in sync with one another, right. which is why I believe that there was a creator because right. it is perfectly and in sync in this one spot. I will concede that it also leads to two things that are um, at this point until more questions or answers hard to refute. Either we are in a simulation and this is kind of the kind of smoking gun that we are because there's no other ones out there, but also that, the original concept in the Bible that this was the center of the universe was correct, correct, but correct. But they had misinterpreted what that meant. Not that the sun uh, revolved around the earth and that the entire universe revolved around the earth, but that really there was only the earth that had life. And therefore it was, it was the center of, uh, of, of reality in, in that sense. And those are two, I will concede those could definitely be possibilities just because we got dead silence up there. So we have to go with yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying one of those is more right than the other, mm-hmm. but it definitely you can go down a rabbit hole of thinking of endless That's possibilities. The thing about the Fermi paradox, you could go down yep. rabbit holes of rabbit holes. Yep. <laughs> but yeah. But I mean, we could keep it down here to reality and talk about that affirmative action for sure um, case with the Supreme Court for sure. Let's. Uh, how about you start us off with that one? That is, uh, that's a fiery one for sure. Um, obviously it was super explosive on Twitter. Um, I was on that day that it got announced. I just has happened to scroll through Twitter the day that, uh, the Supreme court announced the ju- you know, the decision and a uh, man, it was, it was, it was fiery on there for sure. And one of the interesting things is how the Asians are getting grouped into like some kind of white supremacist group by the fact of that mm-hmm. they seem to align with some of these kind of, um, uh, uh, discriminatory concepts. And, uh, so I thought that was interesting. And even Asian groups themselves seem to be split on Twitter, some defending the decision, some against the decision. So like, like anything in life, nothing's black and white and it was gray and there was lots of nuance there, even between the communities within the communities themselves. And did that pass six, three? Cause they had a series of things that they voted on that same weekend. Mm, yes. Good question. We'll see. I'm not sure to be exact. Um, I'll, I'll, let me look. But uh, yeah, there definitely was even, of course, within the court, there was definite heavy contention. And um, 
yeah, that's a, that's a good question. But I mean, even even myself, I think it was great that they they got rid of affirmative action. Now I can understand why they initially had affirmative action um, to begin with, right? But to keep it all the way through till today, I think is highly unnecessary, and it almost implies that some people just aren't good enough to continue with this affirmative action. Mm. That you need some sort of assistance. Yeah, I think I think it's I I view it similar to like the Jim Crow laws was pushing it one way the other way, and these were a way to try to counteract and re and resolve Mm -hmm. that situation. But I think even one of the judges referred that those kind of things increasingly today we need to step away from. And really, in my opinion, separate from that judge is try to focus on the concept of really treating each other and acting like we're all equal in society and giving and getting and working all for justice equally regardless of color, et cetera. And part of that is, though, is uh, truly a meritocracy uh, of uh, the best. And and if that means most of the Asians are going to the best schools, that will be the consequence of what I'm saying because of their test scores being so, so great. Um, And that just means the other communities need to step it up then. That that doesn't mean that somehow this or that. That just means – they're, if they want to get into those schools, they need to step it up. There shouldn't be any kind of um, – if we're talking about a true meritocracy, that's free of any type of prejudice. Yeah, and we, we should also look at the benefits of this. If all the Asians are getting in the top schools, they're the top doctors, I know that if me or anyone in my family or friends are going to the hospital and they have the top fucking doctor, amen. Right. I think as a society, we should want <laughs> – the top this and that who in any field, right? in any field, we want the best bricklayers, road makers, exactly. bridge makers. I don't want to have to go across the bridge and worry about that. It's going to collapse into the fucking ocean. Because it was made on a situation where the best qualified were not there to build it. And that's exactly the kind of situation that that was, that was leading towards. And uh, it arguably already has been creating a situation where not the best are qualified in these positions. And, and also, yeah, there's great opportunities to learn. How is the Asian community being so successful in this? Maybe our education leaders can learn a lot from how this is. They've had so much mm-hmm. success. There's a lot we can learn from this. Uh, and also I a hundred percent agree. If I'm going to the doctor, I, I, I truly want the best there. And I don't care if they're black, white, uh, or alien exactly. or anything. I don't even care. It's, it should be the best. Yep. I mean, and, and if we look at, um, if you look at culture in the Asian community, you take majority of the Asian cultures, except the Philippines, they highly value education. That's right. And then if you look at a lot of the African cultures, they don't value education except Nigeria. Nigeria, as a culture, they highly value education. It's the, Not that one is right or wrong, right. but it's just how those cultures are. In a highly complex society and economy, generally mm-hmm. education will get you better results. So by favoring and highly supporting that in your society, it's not a racial or ethnic thing. It's literally a cultural thing. And by encouraging mm-hmm. that in your society, you're going to find more success on average, I'll say, you know. 
and yeah. the uh, and Nigeria is like the largest economy in Africa now, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a good. And we and we got to look at um, getting rid of this affirmative action is going to continue to allow the United States to thrive because it's going to allow right. the best people from other countries to still want to come here. Right. Versus if someone, if we're getting some of the best young kids from Japan and they're like, but if I go to America, they're actually going to make it harder on me to succeed merely because I'm Asian. Exactly. We don't want that. We want the best of every culture, every country. India. Absolutely. And then, and then we just end up being the American culture, which is what we should be striving for, which has been so diverse. Right. I mean, we represent the largest melting pot in the world sure. throughout history forever. Oh, hands down. Absolutely. And we should pride ourselves on that. Absolutely. And that's uh, we need to keep that dynamic going. And that also gives us, frankly, a great strategic advantage against countries like China. And that mm -hmm. makes them extremely upset is um, uh, I even talked to, to uh, you know a friend one time about this. And they were talking about their Indian friend and how just successful and, and how they had all these degrees and everything like that. And um, it kind of got into a situation where they thought that, you know, Indians were like superior or just overall better. And I, I, I think it's important to remember that the people that are coming here are the most ambitious, the most capable, the mm -hmm. most fired up to change their lives. They are the, the most ambitious. They're the most ready for ready to go. And, uh, I, you know, just to do a good example, there's many folks in India who are just, you know, doing regular bricklaying and don't have any education. Yeah. There's Chinese folks. We think of Chinese Asian folks are so hyper educated, but there's some folks that just ride a bike and, and, and take people around for a living, you know? So there's super mm -hmm. capable people in every group and in every race and in every ethnic group. Um, but the dynamic that makes America special is we pull in some of the best of the best from other countries all around the world because they see an opportunity here that if they really kick butt and they really put in the time and effort, then they can rise to the top. They can be CEO of Microsoft if they want, regardless of their color or, um, you know, if they're Hindu or Christian or whatever. Yeah. And as Americans, we shouldn't think of any other person or group of people as better than us. We should think of it as, that person is not better. They have just taken more time into mastering their craft That's right. and whatever that craft is. So it's not necessarily a better or a lack thereof. Um, and then my second thing is I want us to kind of change our immigration policy to still allow all those all stars from those other countries to have easy access to the United States. Right. I mean, right now, um, with some of these visas from some of these highly talented, highly motivated, like you're saying, people, it's really hard for them to come to the United States. Right. It is hard, you know, and, and then to our only to only our disadvantage, because, frankly, a lot of mm -hmm. those very capable, exceptionally skilled people will then start businesses in their home countries and they might have not as much financial success but it's also going to undermine our success here. And so they might as well be working here and creating a great um, dynamic here. Um, and uh, is that, 
you know, a strategic competition factor for India and China? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And that's part of our strategic advantage. And um, actually, we should um, press our strategic advantage, which is that mm -hmm. you can come here and start your info system equivalent and be very successful here. Um, but if we block them with visas, uh, visa issues, then they they are not going to come here. Yeah. And I've told you, I think we should be a country of developing everything in-house like like tesla apple right. develop everything in-house and how are we supposed to do that with some of the best chip makers best chip engineers are in foreign countries and we can't give them visas that just come over here for sure like how are we supposed to do that and then on the other hand you have shortage of labor workers in the united states doing simple jobs you know in places like California, and I'm not saying we uh, let the floodgates open, but we got to have some sort of immigration reform from top to bottom right. in order to continue this country moving full steam ahead. Absolutely. To keep the engine running, it's essentially whether anyone wants to deal with that fact or not, immigration is going to be a part of it. And even mm -hmm. if the birth rates were at replacement level, and they are, but they're barely there and they're shrinking like all over the world. Even if that was the case, wouldn't you fire up the engine of the economy even more if you had a well-reformed and smart immigration policy? It just, it, it, there's really no real reason why you wouldn't have it. And that's what makes it all the crazier that ours is so upside down and backwards. Yeah. You're just like, why? And we, of all the things. And we know what the consequences are of a, um, failing birth rate and a population that is the in decline with no immigration. For sure. It is a recipe for disaster. It's, it's, I, I mean, I'm more nuanced on it. It's a, it's a, it's going to be a problem for sure. But um, mm -hmm. I think what's important is kind of a reflection of the situation, like these articles about China right now, like the, you see those ones like India officially is now, you know, has more population and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think it's important to remember that these same kind of demographics hit us a few decades ago and all these articles saying that China's on the verge of collapse and they're going to implode and all these things. Well, that didn't happen to us, even though we're decades farther into that. So I think it's important to remember that um, despite the uh, apocalyptic sometimes and that really they're just saying that because of the headline, you know, the clickbait. But mm -hmm. the reality is, it's going to be more nuanced than that. Um there's actually quite a few good benefits to an aging uh, workforce, but in terms of an economy that where it depends on 70% consumption, if it's overall declining, then overall you're going to have a smaller economy. That's just the numbers. But in terms of is actually going to be apocalyptic or, you know, is a country going to collapse? Um, I think we're kind of the proof that and Japan's actually the greatest proof of that, that it's what, like the fourth largest, third largest economy in the world. And has the worst birth rate. In fact, it's actually literally shrinking at the moment. And uh, the longer that goes on, the worse the problems are going to pile up for them and their government finances. But that also doesn't mean necessarily that it's the end times for Japan. Um, the, the less population growth can allow you to maneuver in ways that a high population growth like Egypt, for example, um, has massive youth unemployment. And they, you know, there's, I, I could be wrong, but there's some people saying that with such, when the, when the population growth is so fast, you can't even find enough jobs 
good paying jobs for everybody. And as a result, you're always going to have this like chronic youth unemployment kind of problem. And uh, who causes more trouble than unemployed youths? So those kind of things, you know, political and social, so, and crime. Yeah. yeah. With, uh, with the population, depending on, I, I believe it also depends on each country, their infrastructure, right? What, um, there's other variables in place. How rich they already are per person. Yeah. Things like that. Mm-hmm. For sure. And that, that's where Japan really is generally good. They have, you know, great savings rates and et cetera, et cetera. So even as they decline in population, they have much more buffers than say, you know, I don't know, again, like Nigeria or something. Let's say it's, it's birth rates doing great, but let's say it suddenly reversed really hard and they weren't per person really had good savings rates and good economic growth per person and good education levels yet. Um, that would be a pretty tough situation. And China faces some of that because actually, if you look at the per capita, um, China's not, you know, a wealthy country yet. That's why they often try to say in their politics that they're still an emerging economy because a lot of the population is not, you know, considered a mid middle tier, middle, um, uh, you know, there yet. So as a result, um, if, if, that's where they, they do face a lot of troubles if their birth rates are already declining, but they're not even middle class uh, there yet. That's that's going to be a tough one. But like I said, I would be I would be uh, hesitant to say that that's inevitably spells doom for that country um, either. Uh, so we don't need to open the floodgates and let everybody in. It's more a matter of let's manage it smart and well. Let's manage it very smartly. Very uh, let's use this opportunity that we have people who want to come here. To make it great, make this make this uh, immigration system just we we get benefit as as uh, Americans and they get benefits as people becoming Americans. So, oh yeah, right now we're I, not doing that. I feel. And uh, for all those um, wild Republicans who think we're just gonna let a bunch of people in, right? One of the things that I would want to do is get rid of a lot of, um, you could say the basic for man i'm losing my train of thought right now a lot of the basic subsidies mm. that we allow just for anybody right those kind of you things. know and it's yeah. like we want them to come here with a purpose right. from the from top down come here with a purpose and realize that you're not just going to get put on a here's an income for just coming here without doing anything in that without being productive um because there, there's so many programs out there that you can just walk it across the border and whether it's the top border or the bottom border, right? North or South. People would say I'm a right wing, what have you, because I'm saying the fact that um, we cannot just provide economic refuge for the entire world. They have to figure out the problems in their own countries. If they want to come here, they need to have clear defined reasons and education and the ability and the purpose of coming here. And also, the intent to become a citizen or at least become part of our community. And uh, yeah. if, if it's just huge economic refugees because their countries are unmanageable, that uh, there's, there's so many more billions than there is 300 million Americans that that's just mm-hmm. the numbers simply don't work. And the same thing applies to both Europe and East Asia. Those are the richest parts of the world besides America. And they can't support the entire rest of the world of people just coming there because their economies are in, in, in shambles. It's just, but that's essentially what our immigration policy has been for some time, to a degree, was essentially economic refugees and not actually, do we need this type of labor? 
do we need that type yeah. of education, educated person? Do we need that person with that skill set? And uh, Vivek Ramasamy, he actually has a good idea of anyone who's coming over, even on a visa, mm-hmm. to have them take a civics test. Yeah. You usually take the civics test before you become a citizen. For sure. But he's like, no, let's just have them do that right now. So they know what they're coming in here for, what America is about. Absolutely. And to me, that's not a bad idea. Just take take the civics test before. Come on over here. It's going to make you appreciate America even more. And How is that racist I, or discriminatory or somehow some kind of right-wing thing? Is it not? Shouldn't you know about your own country, appreciate it, knowledge? And I mm-hmm. hold that same value to fellow Americans. I used to take, you can just go online and take, yeah. a, take, take a test and see how well you did. You know, I used to do that all the time. And I, I think it, the same thing should be applied in certain conditions to Americans. At least they should be able to pass a civics test. I mean, that's not, it's not hard. Trust me. I took them, took them on yeah. there. These are basic stuff. This is basic stuff. But if you think the first president was, you know, Hillary Clinton or Trump, uh, the first president <laughs> of America, then you're just as, then how can you really, um, talk down or say that immigrants are the problem because honestly yeah exactly part of the problem as well frankly um proposing right now have to pass a civics test in order to vote 2024 yeah that's that's a fiery issue (laughs) and uh, it would be like but honestly if you see these tests they're not crazy and the fact that people are so riled up about having to take such an easy test is somewhat concerning because we're saying these are the foundational principles of the Republic. And if you don't even know these and you don't even have any concept at all of them, then how are you a good citizen? How can you make good, smart voting decisions? I just don't see how that, uh, I just don't see those two things don't make sense. They, uh, they're at odds. You, uh, you know, I don't know. They, they, you know, they interview those people and it's kind of a joke and they usually take the worst responses as the clickbait. Yeah, and publish those. Nonetheless, it's just shocking how many people would not even know where certain countries are, certain states are, uh, basics about the foundational principles, what a Supreme Court is. These are not tough. Mm-hmm. These are not like quantum physics. And this is... Uh, yeah, and yeah. oftentimes it makes me think, because it's always Americans who they're doing these interviews with. <laughs> Every time. And it makes me think, what are they actually teaching these kids in school? Oh, for sure. Yeah, you have to no. wonder. Like, I, th- I was total clickbait, but one of them was like, this guy asked him, like, what's the first, what was the first president? He's like, George Floyd. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was oh, like, yeah, I'm sure he was being, uh, you know, facetious, you know, he was, he was bullshit, yeah. but uh, still, it was um, just one of those things, like, you should immediately know, and those are the things that you should be able to pass the test. It is tough because in the past, there's these histories of countries making rules for you to vote. And um, it was either two ways that they could block you out, either by landowners, only vote, or um, you have to pass some test. And what starts off as an easy civics test, then suddenly, you know, they legislate all these new, like, Oh, you have to know about woke ideology to pass the test or vice versa, you know, fascist ideologies to, to pass it or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And so what starts as a great idea often would become a, a, a really easy tool to um, discriminate and and block people out of legitimate voting. And that's why, in general, America has had a tough relationship of just let everybody vote to avoid these kind of games that they start blocking people out. With that said, I mean... Do we all want these people voting for our future decisions? How well has that worked so far in these last 40 years? 
Not, yeah, I. Not that it much. makes me think of a uh, Greek philosopher who said the politician will make promises at the expense of the treasure for votes. Right. <clears throat> and it's like, man, that is so true. And still applies so, so much to today. Yeah. So, so much. much. And educated people can't um, think their way out of these promises. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. or, I mean, excuse me, non-educated people can't think their way out of mm-hmm. these promises. So they're much more easily just, you know, bread and circus, vote for me. Much easier that way. And uh, they seem to be manipulating the system that way. And the worse our education system is and the less educated these people are, uh, the worse this situation gets. Which also brings to back to the fact that why don't we have civics education in school anymore at all? Did, they, did you ever hear why they removed it? No. I don't either. I was wondering, like, there never seems to be, like, a good reason. Why would you remove something to, to learn about the foundation aspects of your government, society, republic? I, here, here's my, my personal th- off the top of my head. I believe that they remove things like that so the general public doesn't understand the fundamentals that our founding fathers wanted for this country. Right. Because if the American people understood the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, or even read the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. They would understand that our government is not supposed to be where they're at today. We're not supposed to have a single bank who's in charge of the money system. Mm-hmm. Like Thomas, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson warned us about that. Right. We would not be a two-party system. Thomas Jefferson warned us about that. There's... Um, James Madison, the father of the constitution, he made it very clear that we were a Republic and would not be, there would not be a mob rule where a majority could impose their will on the minority. There's so many little things and there's so many little things that our government has done over the years to tweak it, to tweak it, change, change how, um, the electoral college works, change how, um, different voting systems works based off, um, you could say, uh, like different boundary lines for, for like sure. counties and things. Mm-hmm. Just like these little things, or they'll change how we calculate unemployment. Um, there's just so many like just little things that they'll do, mm-hmm. and we are just programmed to that's what is normal. Yeah, the, the, so we the, don't the think trick of else. adding those legislative, like it starts off as a great idea, and then they add little things that change the whole nature of the initial mm-hmm. law and the initial concept. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't really know that behind the scenes, but now our whole structure is different, much more centralized than the founding fathers, I think, initially uh, uh, intended. And of course, you know, what's the ultimate sum of uh, centralization is like a king or something. Isn't that the opposite of what we we're trying to do here? in the first place. Yeah, it it really is. I mean, the amount of power that you can say that the president of the United States has right now, I mean, I think they're just total government. Right. All 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 three branches it is not supposed to be that way. That's concerned you me know? about the executive branch for some time and to me though it's a reflection of uh basically if the if the supreme court and the uh congress which is the two other branches can't do their job and are not effectively doing their job and are essentially especially the uh legislative branch is so deadlocked then 
by de facto or otherwise, the executive branch begins to accumulate more power. And that's almost exactly what's happening. He has to, they have to increasingly by decree pass something because the legislative branch can't pass it. And the fact that they can't actually get it done, he has to make some decree, whether it's Trump in one thing or or Biden on another. They're increasingly like by fiat, just um, acting like kings. I don't entirely blame that these individual politicians are doing it, but as a result of the fact that our legislative branch is increasingly seeming to not being able to function. And that is very concerning in the sense that isn't this the start of how the Roman uh, ancient Roman civil war started was that the, mm-hmm. the senators could never agree. And then, so there had to be strong men who increasingly made the decisions and actually got the laws passed. So. And I feel like when they do agree, it's on things that are so outrageous that the, the, the things that they agree on are not good for the benefit of the people. Mm like multi-trillion dollar spending packages right. when they both agree on those things, when they both agree on dipping into social security in the nineties, you know, when they both agree on certain things, it's like, well, man, that's why are you guys agreeing on these? Despite what they say about their uh, competitor on the other side of the aisle, they always seem to vote together and like pay raises and get new medical yeah. <laughs> Man, they seem to come together yep. for that. It's amazing. Yep. This <laughs> applies to you guys, but does not apply to us. It's amazing how much they cooperate in that case. And it shows that the lack is like it's it, the, the system. It's not like the system doesn't allow cooperation it's that they're mm-hmm. incentivized not to in many cases and as a result though the the end fact is is it's gridlocking the government at a level that's very important uh, that they do not do that because inevitably more power will start to accumulate in the courts and in the executive branch i mean it's it, whether whether anyone intends it to of course we don't want that to the whole concept of it was for them to be balanced each one as a counterweight to the other but inevitably, yep. if one is not functioning, the other two have to pick up the slack or else the whole thing stops functioning altogether. And so, you know, that's a scary, uh, unnerving thing. And I've been thinking about that ever since. What was it like? Um, uh, you know, like the uh, the debt limits situations. And they oh, had yeah. been talking about that for some time. And there was a couple of things where like uh, they were stuff like that, where like, if the if the Senate cannot agree, then there might be they're talking about some kind of constitutional little side rule that maybe the president can decree it by uh, by himself. And uh, I find that very disturbing because that's the kind of Caesar stuff that we're leading towards where all of a sudden he gets the he was never credited with that power. Now he is. And and it wasn't the original intent for the president that right. that I know which line you're talking about. And it wasn't the intent. For him to make that decision. That's correct. The, the Exactly. Legislation branch is supposed to be doing its job and supposed to be making those decisions, not one group of, you know, the president and his group, his, his, uh, his cabinet. Um, yeah. They're too politicized and they have too many other obligations that it's supposed to be able to spread that out. And the decision is supposed to be made smartly from the legislative branch, then if the courts find that it's unconstitutional, they can, they have the power to veto both of those and send it back to have the law made again. Mm-hmm. The Supreme court, I think is 
it goes back and forth. People say it's it's leaning right right now, but historically it's gone through a wave and really it's not, you know, it's it seems to be functioning okay relatively. The more concerning thing what? is the executive and the supreme the actual law making part because the courts mm-hmm. aren't actually the part that actually makes the laws anyways. They're the ones who look at already passed laws by the other two branches and then say does this still lie within the constitution? That's yeah. their junk. As far as I can tell, they seem to be still doing that their their job relatively well most of the time. It's the other two branches we got to worry about. Yeah, I mean, not to bring up a sort of subject, but when the when our Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade, mm. many people don't realize the fact that they did that was because they felt it was unconstitutional at a federal level. Right. And gave the power back to the states. Right, right, exactly. And that's a perfect example. Like, they, it might take a long time for them to determine that it is unconstitutional. And uh, usually it doesn't take that long, you know, of course, but um, that is what makes that case unusual. But uh, that's, that's the Supreme yeah. Court's job. You know, ultimately somebody has to decide, is it, does it still lie within our, because they could make up a law that's totally ridiculous. And the great thing about the Supreme Court is if this law is totally outside of our constitution, they can still, the Supreme Court still has the power to say, nope, that's out of here. And that's yeah, a powerful and, tool. So, And then you have the media pushing that decision, stating that women have their rights taken away, but it's like, whoa, whoa, they're not taking away anyone's rights. They're actually putting it onto the state, which it should have been from the beginning. Right. And even though I am generally like, you know, get abortion if you need, don't get it if you don't want to, whatever, just I'm more generally like you're free to make a decision on that. Um, that is a decision that if that's the case, generally leave it up to the states to decide that it shouldn't be on a federal level because of such wide yeah. divergence between the states. Um, there are some states that if you were to poll the majority of the people, I thought the states, uh, the people in the state was who, um, you know, decided those things. The majority mm-hmm. of the state says they don't want abortion, then allow that state to not do that. And if you don't like that, I mean, I know it's so tough to move and, and leave. I know it's it's easy to say, oh, yeah, we'll just leave if you want to, uh, if you don't like that. But at the end of the day, it seems like we're doing that anyways, even on things like politics. If you don't, you know, people are moving away yeah. from states that they don't even like politically. So it's hard to say that you, if that's really important to you, you know, then you're going to leave. The amount of people who've been moving states the last three, four years is i think is at a high for sure you know just exchanging of states so historically it's actually at like it it may be on a bump recently but it's actually historically at a low which is very fascinating so like the amount of americans who were traveling for work and stuff back in the 60s was much higher and actually we're starting to overall like start to gravitate around our home bases much more than we used to which I find is really, you think that would be the opposite, wouldn't it? Like you would think with more technology than ever, more ways for me to Zoom call you guys back in Reno, um, people would move more than ever. But there's a weird social trend. Uh, I'll send you guys the link about it. And um, I'm trying to make sense of it as well. And basically these people are as well, is why is everyone starting to kind of less move for opportunity than they used to? And perhaps maybe there's less opportunity. I don't know, but I'm not sure. But um, that's maybe in the short, that's in the long term, like over the last 30 years. But if there's a short term bump that people are on the move, 
then that means they've had enough of one state's politics or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now they're on the move right now because of, but if you're going to move for politics, is it really too much to ask if you need to move um, uh, for, if you're really going to have so many abortions that you need to go to another state, I guess. Um, yeah. Am I asking so too you, much? You, am you I, I don't know, but I just think ultimately though, the states should decide. With that said, I also don't think the federal government should decree that they're all banned abortion. Mm-hmm. They it yeah. should be left to the states to decide. Ultimately, let's 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 the majority in each state decide what they each state wants. That's fine with me. Because if you give them the power to say federally that they can have abortions across the board, you're also giving them the power to say that nobody can have an abortion. Those kind of powers. That's yeah, one of the things exactly. that that's one of the things that these these women or even males who are in an uproar about that decision don't understand. You're giving them the power to do both. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. That's the thing that's missing. That as I, if my team, my tribe says, then I, I'm right. But the reality is, if you give the federal government that power, then that same thing can be that the other tribe decides for you. And do you want to remove, you want to remove any tribe being able to have that power over you and let the state. Exactly. The best thing that we can pray for is that they relinquish the power back to the individuals and or state. That's what we want. And I, like I said, I'm generally pro abortion in the sense that people should just have them if you need to, but, or if you are religious or you don't want to, and you believe in the principle of not having them, then no one should force you to have them either. So you should have the ability to choose and essentially or pro-choice or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, I also don't think it should be a decree uh, from above by the federal government. It should be each state decides. And again, each individual should decide if your state allows it, but you morally are against it, you should have the choice not to get one. You see what I'm saying? Like you should, you should still be, if your, your state says, well, by all rights, you should go get one. If you don't morally want to, then you should have the right not to get one either. So you should, it's about the freedom of choice to choose whether to or not, you know, is ultimately my take. Uh, other people's take is like they should ban it everywhere, right? Of course. And uh, the, and there's a lot of nuance in between. Yeah, and I am of the camp that there should be no pro-life. exception That's right. to pro-life. abortion. Yeah. <laughs> so and guess what? He's pro-life, I'm pro-choice. People, but both of us agree. And we're still going to be friends. But yeah, we're still going to be friends. And both of us agree yeah. that the federal government shouldn't be the ultimate decider of that. I think yes, we can both agree. Yes, 100%. Yeah. They shouldn't be the one because I already stated it. Right. The fact that they got rid of, they said that there was abortion federally and then they put it back in the States. Those same people could have said, we're going to ban it federally. Ban it. And we got to remember that. Put the power to give the power to the people. And let them make the decision. They were rampaging just because their side had lost on that case, but they really didn't realize that we were removing the power in general. They were removing the power in general from them to make the mm-hmm. decision of the worst case for them, which would be to ban it outright, which it was yeah. for a long time. People forget how long it was actually banned. People don't, and people got so weird with me when they said when the federal government or the Supreme Court approved gay marriage, mm-hmm. I was like, that's not a win. That's another example. We're uh, li- merely right. asking permission right. to get married between two human beings, regardless of their sex. We are getting permission. They should say it's not up to us, has nothing to do with us. That is the people's decision right. on if two males or two females or a male and a female want to get married. That is between them 
and whoever it is that's going to marry them, whether it's the church or an individual, right. it should be between them. We shouldn't be giving them and praising them for the power that they have taken over us. I'm generally of the same camp in that each state should decide that for themselves. Um, but what the federal level should just decide is that if anyone wants to, they have the right to. But it's each state has to decide for themselves because that's originally how the republic was designed, as far as I understand. So based on that structure, we do need right. to hem to that structure unless we're going to change the constitution that the federal government should only decree that such a thing is in general allowed, but each state is going to have to decide that. And if you don't like it, you know, each state can have its ability to restrict it or expand on it as they see fit. Cause again, as soon as you yeah. make it the federal decision, then it could be uh, on high decreed for everyone, regardless of how they feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And if you notice people, we are using the term Republic. It irks me when people say democracy. There is a difference. Mm, and our founding sure. fathers yeah. did not use the word democracy one time in any of our founding documents. They actually feared what the power of the people could do with unfettered yes. power like that. Yeah. They actually feared it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we use it today. And it, it often, every politician uses the word democracy and we want to spread democracy. And it often... I don't have an answer for this. I don't even really necessarily know that I have a theory on why it is that every politician uses the word democracy versus a republic. Right. Because a democracy does imply mob rule. So let's define these terms then, because I think we're actually a constitutional republic, if I'm not mistaken, right? We are a republic, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, we're a constitutional republic, republic, right? Because there's different types of republics, right? We, we, we elect representatives to pass laws, but we vote for them. So in a republic right. like the ancient Roman Senate one, that was there was no vote per se in the sense that you would decide. You there was very limited conditions on who could vote, who created those representatives, who put those. But it was still technically a republic, though, right? It was, but it wasn't. A free, it wasn't a fully democratic one. Right, hey, Alex. Do you want to define either the republic or the democracy, and I'll do the other. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and just uh, in that same sense, I'd also like to speak about some very interesting ancient Athens uh, stories mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. uh, totally unchecked democracy because they were about the closest of a large body to a large governmental body using just total democracy. And right. uh, what really came clear and why the Republic is so important is because it slows down the fiery emotions of people on decision making that's going to affect everyone's lives they often would make wild decisions by decree of rule of the mob that they would, they, the democracy themselves would then have to then at the last moment vote back because they realized that they were emotionally, they were voting emotionally. They weren't voting. Uh, they were voting as a mob. They were not voting as individual thinking citizens. The Republic essentially acts as a filter for that. So this representative that we elected, that person is in theory going to act as a filter. So instead of the mob rule deciding, that law, he's gonna. The mob is gonna vote for that person, and that person's gonna work with other people to create, a, you know, a law. A republic is a state in which supreme power is held by the people and their elected representatives. So the people uh, vote for that elected representative. That representative is part of a group who then make the laws. So actually, the the people don't make the laws. The representatives. With that said, de facto we do though because we elect those people into office. So our decisions ultimately decide who gets an office and who, that person in office decides what laws are made. 
And obviously, you know, we for can the see benefit it. of those people that he's representing. Absolutely. Right. In theory. Right. And so, like, here's a great example. Really, I'm going to jump in, Alex, sure. of mob rule in democracy. I could be year, wrong with the year, but in like 2006, the state of California put on the ballot gay marriage. The merit, the California citizens voted no. They voted no. So you're letting a large group of people determine whether two people can get married. So then it went to court and a judge said it was unconstitutional to not allow these two people to get married. So then it overturned and then it went back to that there wasn't um, a decision. But the fact that a judge is able to then overturn the body of work of a bunch of people voting doesn't allow very much confidence in your vote right. that is going to something. But the, so the first piece is a group of people got to vote and tell the minority what they could or could not do. And then a judge comes back and tells those same group of people, your votes don't matter. Here's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. So it's that tricky situation when you get into a democracy but with the republic right. like he's saying you're supposed to represent these people who elected you and then you go to war with the other representatives to do what's best for the people that's that why we you. still have the electoral college that's right. yeah. yeah the electoral college is there for a reason and we need to keep it there they have changed rules about the electoral college which i disagree with but that's another discussion the electoral college is supposed to represent those people in Nebraska, um, the Dakotas, so that people in four major metropolitan areas in this country who are a majority don't decide everything for every single person in this country. Right. If you take New York, Chicago, Houston, and LA, they could vote, outvote the rest of the country. Easily. Mm -hmm. And right. yep. tell us what to do. Yep. We don't care about you in Nevada. You got to do this. And it would move it much more like, closer what? to a conceptual mob rule if those four mm -hmm. regions dominated all the other decision making in the entire state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our country. So, yeah. It's it so, a great counterweight. And the people most upset is usually the people in those four regions who want to dominate all policies and things. And the thing mm -hmm. that's often lost about that is people are less concerned about the actual functioning of the electoral college and more that it stands in their way for them to dominate the rest of the country politically and with their law, with their, you know, the rulemaking. So yeah. that's one of those things that's even then is, is, is controversial because I just find when they talk about that, they're less concerned about the actual electoral college and more that it reduces their ability to override other states by just sheer weight of numbers, you know, their, yeah. their representative uh, weight would, would make it. So uh, they would have all that much more strength to pass the laws in the federal level at will without uh, the electoral college. So in my opinion, the electoral college was originally invented for a different concept, but really what accent is now as a counterweight to that exact thing. Cause there was no way, there was no way at the founding of the thing that they would have known that California would have been the largest population state. Remember, it wasn't even a state. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even mm – -hmm. there was nobody even in there yet, realistically, <laughs> yeah. from you know the 13 colonies. The, even before the gold rush, if you would ask, would California go on to be the largest both economically and by population individual state? That, they would have been – that's hilarious, man. This is, the, this is the wild west out here. This is the wild lands out here. 
So um, there's no way that they could have, like, so there's no way the founding fathers could have known that. So what's great, though, is that the Electoral College can still act as a counterweight to the fact of mm-hmm. unknowns that we could not have possibly predicted, they could not have possibly predicted, and now act as a real uh, situation where their ability to sway uh, just by their sheer weight is significant. I mean, uh, I've often heard, heard Nevada referred to as nothing more but a satellite of California. So, <laughs> you know. Just and it is in the sense of economically and by population, they're just a little splash of California. So that's so we need a counterweight, and that's where the republic is. Are we a democracy? Then California would dominate. If we're a republic, um, if we're a republic, then each state is going to have to be more equally weighted, uh, for better or worse. Okay. Sometimes that works on one group side, and sometimes it works against them. So, yeah. And in theory, that the system we have set up is actually incredibly brilliant. You know, having the Senate where only two representatives are represented from each state, and you know, it's like, and the House dependent on the population. I think, you know, having those layers of checks and balances, I think, is incredibly why, you know, incredibly the main reason why we're here and how right. we're the main powers because we have those kind of checks. That being said, it's it's interesting how we've lost such trust in those systems in the the same sense, you know, Mm -hmm. how it's like, they don't seem to be operating in the way we think they should, but in the the same sense, they are actually operating really great. Yeah. It's interesting. For sure. Yeah. Well, the founding fathers also never meant for career politicians. They weren't even paid initially. It was a volunteered act. So you would be working your ranch or you were a banker or business owner. You went and served your two years and then you went back to being this or that. You remember George Washington, they wanted to keep him in there and he said, no. Yeah, Yeah, that's definitely how it should be. Um, They pretend that the laws are so complicated, but it's similar to lawyer or finance markets where they come up with words that are words, but they're not real words. So then no one can understand it except for them in the industry. Mm-hmm. And then they pretend like it's so complicated that no one else can understand it. But you guys made it that way in the first place. And as a result, what are they? Well, there's another word for that. It's called job security. But it certainly right. isn't what we should be doing for our politicians. They, they pretend like it's so complicated that you need to be in there for life to be able to navigate the system. Sure, sure. I'm and sure. In, in the same sense, they don't even understand how the internet or any of the complexities of modern life really work. But they, yeah. they s- still hold the degree that they, you know, it's so complicated. Like, no. that, that Twitter yeah. post and somehow they all leave. It. Yeah. And every time they leave office after 40 years, they're worth 20-something million dollars. And right. if they saved every penny of their salary, it wouldn't be a fraction of that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Like, what? How does that make any sense? Something's happening. Something they're benefiting ways that are not benefiting the people who elected them, and that's been clear right. for some time. And there was a, a very interesting. I wish I would. Uh, I'll try to find it again. But it, I think it was a British politician speaking uh, about the United States uh, government system, and he found it fascinating in the sense that actually, like we we're saying with those checks and balances, it's actually designed to slow things down. And you actually think, okay, well, that's not good, right? But actually, it is in a sense. It's just the problem is it, it can also tip into dysfunction and not passing anything mm-hmm. at all. But in a way, like I said, Athens is a great example of the passions of the people and the passions of the moment. And perhaps we'll use gay uh, marriage in California example. Let's just say 
people don't really consider on the merit on the merits or anything or on its, its historical or constitutional um, correctness. They somebody just came up with a great advertising campaign. And people are so emotionally invested in it and they're just like, wow, this is amazing. And they're fired up and they're not even thinking about any other consequences, but just what the emotion of what that did. That's not a good way to make laws. And Athens was a great example of a great, uh, literally uh, rhetorical speaker could get the crowd fired up with an amazing speech. And they'd all they'd all vote to execute this general or whatever. And then they'd realize He's one of our best generals. He's literally saved Athens like many times. And at the very last moment, as the decree of that that general was about to get executed, somebody would show up and say they reversed the decision. That's not a way to make laws, and it's a chaos. And honestly, Mm -hmm. pure democracy is that concept that we wish could work. But because of exactly factors like that, where too many people are swayed by too many things that aren't important to what, how the law should actually apply. We need to have, we need to have, we need to slow it down. We need to have filters. I like to think of them as filters that kind of slow this process down. Problem is these filters can get clogged and then nothing gets through. <laughs> yeah. to it becomes stagnant. Yeah. So I've always exactly. thought about that British politician because he had a different insight and they, some of their things in the parliament are designed to speed things along. Um, and it, where ours was specifically designed to slow that down. So, in a sense, it's a double-edged sword. But yeah, exactly. If you're looking yeah. for a perfect system, there is none. Uh, there's obviously disadvantages right. to that as well. But in general, I think, in general, it works well this way to remove those kind of emotions. Some PR campaign shouldn't decide whether it's a law or not, and people will vote on that and have before in that same manner a great, a great speech, a great thing. That's not how law should be made. It should be filtered through many things before it's finally Mm -hmm. imposed on everybody. I I do have a thought experiment for you guys. Do you think there is a way that democracy could work with the um, advantages of technology and, you know, the most, the more recent advances? I think it, it is, in terms of logistically, it's more capable than ever. I still feel that the same Athens thing still applies right. even 2,000 years later. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, for better or worse. I mean, that's that's my take on it. It's, like, it's the human. I think you're right, yeah. It's the human factor. But it logistically, frankly, I think they could. I think they could remove yeah. They could remove the I other. think you're right. I, I'm kind of in the camp of no. I think the American people with their emo- emotions – are going to vote off emotion. Mm-hmm. And like he said, there could be some sort of advertising, some sort of campaign, something that just strikes the hearts of people, yeah. whether it is wrong or right. And people are just going to vote with their emotions. Absolutely. That's why yeah. propaganda I mean, is so powerful. You know, it, it really used. is. I mean, yeah, that's why propaganda is such a powerful tool. And if you were mm-hmm. saying like, if propaganda works so well, then should those people be allowed to vote and then decree law by propaganda? Essentially, mm-hmm. no. That's right. we need to have. We need to slow it down. Think about it after the day of the speech, and you thought about what he said. You're calmed down now. You're like, well, maybe he wasn't making that good of a. You need to. You need to. need to filter before you uh, actually decree gonna, the great laws of. You know. I gotta hop off to go get. Um, your guys' sister. For sure. Oh, yeah. She was telling me about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's been like texting me 
a lot, <laughs> which normally she doesn't do because I think she knows that we're just getting on this or that you're getting on. So she's like, they're going to be on it forever. But I read a preview for a book mm-hmm. that I'm going to buy for you guys that's trippy. This book talks about how the CIA, this is a total fucking different thing, but kind of on the same topic. How the CIA created, um, like Jim Morrison, all these bands of the 60s and the 70s. So Jim Morrison's dad was an actual Navy commander, and he was in charge of the boat that was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin that was shooting at nothing and said that they got attacked. That was Jim Morrison's dad. He was the Navy commander. Hmm. Anyways, and he... And a couple other famous band people in the 60s, their fathers were also government agents. And they talked about how they created the this music and this trend in the 60s and promoted drug use to make the hippies look anti-war and discredit their message. Wow. So that the American people wouldn't get behind them and their anti-war message. And that they would support the military industrial complex to go mm. um, get rid of communists. <laughs> that seemed to have backfire on them, if I'm not mistaken, right? They did eventually. I mean, the anti-war rhetoric de- definitely won out, right? Yeah. It, it, the war still the war still lasted ten years though, so it, it definitely. Uh, I, guess, yeah. I guess both so kind of kind of didn't, it, right? You know, right. it kind of it kind of it kind of didn't <laughs> because I mean, we ended up doing the. Gulf of Tonkin. We ended up going to a series of wars after that. That's true. Yeah. But that was their way to discredit these people is the saying they were LSD taking hippies and just stoners and they were funding these bands and musicians. Is this part of the MK Ultra stuff? This sounds like part of that. The MK Ultra. Um, Dude, I took a. uh, because that's, uh, was it Tim, Timothy Leary was MK? I can't remember. I'd have to do some research on it. But yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of that stuff going on with LSD and stuff. One thing that definitely undermined my, in that same era, it was around that time, was undermined my views on the government was um, the fact that I oh, never would have thought the government would work with them. But they ended up for a time to combat the communists, which is no excuse. They were working with the Italian mafia. And I was like... At first, when I was younger, I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I was like, "That's that's absurd. That's um, ridiculous." But over time, the evidence has become clear that uh, the CIA did work with the Italian mafia um, in a very shady way to uh, try to combat the, the communists in other places. Those are those kind of things that, man, you know, you got to stand on your morals. And if you're yeah. working with uh, with with terrible people, then you are. Um, creating terrible outcomes. And uh, so from that point on, I was was, always more wary of questioning the government. You have to be a little more wary. You know, you you learn, you get mm -hmm. wiser about whether just to take what they say at full, uh, full faith. I mean, the CIA was doing tests in San Francisco on um, prison patients with LSD and they were working with Charles Manson. I think that's what I'm referring to as the MK ultra stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that is. And it's like, it is so interesting. Charles Manson got put in jail a couple times during the test and the CIA bailed him out each time. Yeah, yep. Because there was an aspect of LSD that allowed you to almost program someone's actions. 
And so they wanted to see how they could do it on a military aspect. And so they were taking guys out of prison, right. giving them LSD and mm-hmm. seeing if they could pull off things. And I think, I mean, I, I they, yeah, they, dis, they, they discontinued the program because they found that they couldn't actually turn them into automatons. Exactly. That was the, that exactly. was the, <laughs> they would just, but the fact that they were still doing that. <laughs> I wonder what they did learn from it though. I wonder if they did get any kind of information that they've been utilizing from that, you know? I mean, I've only read a little bit that I was fascinated in was just about how resilient the brain actually is to becoming totally programmed. It's actually pretty fascinating, despite how many drugs and stuff they tried and all these like um, torture programs even that they tried where they were trying to get people to tell the truth and stuff. It's actually amazing how resilient the brain is to uh, just becoming uh, uh, totally enslaved. Yeah, the human body is extremely resilient. Extremely resilient. It was like, I mean, you think if you were so deep in some LSD and shrooms and stuff that I would just say whatever you thought you wanted me to say. But turns out like they were saying stuff that they wouldn't like they would try to game them and then they wouldn't say what they wanted to ever. So they couldn't get them (laughs) to do exactly what they wanted to do. So they literally were not being able to program their brain. And therefore they as far as I understand, that's one of the reasons, obviously, there's other reasons why they discontinued the program, but um, well, just well, just a final I note. Did. Go ahead. What's up? Oh no, I was gonna say I do got to run. You were gonna say a final note? Yeah, I was gonna say, um, that's just one instance of something that we know from the CIA. So, what are the all the other stuff that we don't know? Is is the one thing that I would like to. And the Italian mafia remember. one was under was was covered up for a long time and has only slowly come yeah. to light. That's an example. And, uh, yeah, my final thought is as well is that, um, with all these propaganda and agitprop campaigns going on, that's exactly another reason why we need to slow the lawmaking process down. There's so many Mm -hmm. inputs that are trying to game the people's vote that you just can't have them just as much as we'd like to, in theory, just vote and be done with it. Each individual, Mm -hmm. the world's too complex for that. I agree. Good shit. Good shit. Um, I'd say we get on another one this evening if you're free. For the app or for podcast? Uh, both. I'm done. For sure. Oh, yeah. Um, we definitely, yeah, the know, app is, uh, yeah, for sure as well. Tacitus, the Roman senator, mm-hmm. he said, the more the laws, the more corrupt the state. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's a good way Something to sum it to up. Think about Let's slow it down. Republic or like Democratic. It. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely.